Now, some of you may be asking the question, why talk about marriage and why talk about it now? Let me go ahead and answer that for you uh, in this way. We live in a culture, so we swim in the waters of a world that has a very low view and a very low bar of marriage, and yet the Bible continues to hold a very high view and a very high bar for marriage. Listen, I don't know if you've heard this statement before, that what one generation does in moderation, the next generation does in excess. Some of you might be familiar with that whole principle. Um, but listen, in previous generations within our nation, the view of marriage within the prevailing culture began to move down and to the right. It began to slide lower and lower and lower. If you look at the divorce rates from the late 1800s to the late 1900s, in the late 1800s, the divorce rates in our nation were 4%. The late 1900s, they were at 54%. So a 50% change over the course of those 100 years. Also, in the, the 20th century, you had the introduction of what was known in many states as no-fault divorce laws. So no longer did you have to prove that you, somebody had, had abused you, committed adultery on you, or abandoned you to get a divorce. Now you could get a divorce for irreconcilable differences. Or as Jesus' opponents in the gospel say, can we put our wives away for any reason? Right? So you can walk out of marriage for any reason. Uh, and so this was kind of the prevailing view of marriage that began to really entrench itself within American culture over the, last, over the last century. And what one generation does in moderation, the next in excess. And so as you have emerging adults who are coming into adulthood, many of whom have been, the, the, have been in, in, in families that have been broken by divorce, what their parents did in treating marriage as a contractual consumer relationship once they were in it, many emerging adults are beginning to treat marriage as a contractual consumer relationship as they move toward it, right? And so as a result, there's a very low view of marriage. It's continued to slide down and to the right within our culture. And so many emerging adults are the products of homes that were torn by divorce, and they, it's caused so much pain in their life that they have a very low view of marriage. In fact, they look at marriage and say, something that's caused so much pain, so much devastation, so much heartache, so much hurt for me, why even bother with the institution? Many emerging adults look at marriage and they believe that marriage also stifles the romantic aspect of the relationship, like the legal stifles the romantic. And so if that's the case, if the ceremony and the piece of paper is going to remove the passion and the excitement, then why even bother with marriage? Right? So they, what they've done is they've slid into kind of a mode of cohabitation in which we're just going to live together at least long enough until I figure out if you work for me, Right? We're going to see if you work for me. And the Bible has a much different view of marriage. It has a very high view and a high bar for marriage. See, what the, what's caused so much confusion and so much heartache within our culture, the Bible gives clarity to, and it brings healing for. Right? And so what we want to do over these next four weeks is this, is we take a deep dive into Ephesians 5, we, want, we don't want to lower our view of marriage to the, to, to the, we don't want to lower the bar of the Bible's view of marriage down to our personal experience. What we want to do is we want to raise our view of marriage up to the bar that the Bible sets for it. And begin to embrace that perspective as we think about this relationship that God has designed and ordered in creation. Now listen, one thing that I've learned over the years is this. I haven't learned many things, but one thing that I've learned is this, is that the deeper that you dig oftentimes the more painful it becomes, but simultaneously the more productive it can be. As somebody who's experienced a grade two hamstring tear a couple of years ago doing something I had no business doing on a track at my age, 
Um, but running a speed workout on a track, I had a grade two hamstring tear. And in the process of, of rehabilitation for that injury, I went through soft tissue therapy. Some of you are like, you just want to got a massage. Listen, nobody willingly signs up for this, Okay. Basically what they did, they got really deep into the belly of my hamstring and they began to work through that, play, that point of injury, that point of tear. So what it did is it began to break up all the scar tissue that began to build around that tear, began to realign the muscle fibers. And over the course of time, as they got deep, I mean like China deep, down into the belly of my hamstring... Right? The mobility began to return. The flexibility began to return. Some of the strength began to return in that muscle. Because the deeper that you dig, it creates pain. There is painful, tender parts down deep within all of us. But I want you to know that if you'll let the Scriptures speak over the course of these next several weeks in your life, if you don't edit them, if we don't try and work our way around them, but if we go straight at them and let them speak, it might be painful for some of us, but I can promise you this. That as God's word goes forth, I believe it will be productive. It might bring healing in your life. See, for some of us, it might be very painful because whenever we walk the aisle, our marriage today is not what we thought it should be. Or it might be today not what we think it ought to be. For some of us, our marriage might be on the verge of collapse. It might have recently dissolved. For some of us, our marriage might have caused great pain in our lives. For some of us in the room, we might have pain in our eyes because we aspire to marriage one day, but, right, but we ha- that, that aspiration has yet to turn into fruition for us. And so we want and we long for a good, God-honoring, healthy marriage, and yet it's not materializing for us. Right? There are no prospects in our windshield. And so we're waiting, and it might be painful to talk about marriage, but I believe it will also be productive in your life. Maybe some of that emotional scar tissue that's been created might be broken up and God might begin to touch those tender parts and bring healing. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to dive deep into Ephesians 5 and take a look at this relationship that the Bible calls marriage. And we're going to begin at the very end of Ephesians 5 and we're going to work our way through the majority of this entire chapter over the course of the next four weeks. But we're going to start at the very end of it. So if you've got a Bible, Ephesians 5, verses 31 to 33 is what we're going to read this morning. It'll also be on the screen behind me as we read it together. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let Each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now right out of the gate, what I want you to see is the essence of marriage, what the Bible calls marriage. And the essence of it is this, that Paul says in Ephesians 5 that marriage is a sacred covenant, not a social contract. It is a sacred covenant. It is not a social contract. When you look in Ephesians 5, at the end of the text, Paul has laid out the roles of husbands and wives in marriage, which we're going to get to in a few weeks. But he quotes Genesis 2.24. He goes all the way back to the beginning. And when he quotes Genesis 2.24, saying, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That language in Genesis 2 that shows up again in Ephesians 5 is covenant language. And in the Bible, whenever a covenant is in view, oftentimes it has two dimensions. There is a vertical dimension to the covenants in the Bible and there is a horizontal dimension to covenants in the Bible. There's a vertical dimension because God is a God who has covenanted with His people. 
word, when you think of covenant, I want you to think of promise and pledge. That's what covenant is. It's to make a promise and a pledge. And throughout the Bible, that's how God relates to his people. He relates to them on the basis of promises and pledges that he makes to them. So vertically, God makes a promise and a pledge to his people, which binds him to them. And then in return, God asks his people to make promises and pledges and commitments to him, which would then in turn bind them to him. So there's this vertical dimension. God has freely bound himself to his people, and he asks his people to freely bind themselves to him in covenant through the making of promises and pledges. There's that vertical dimension. And then on, as a result of that vertical dimension of the covenant, God says we enter into covenants with each other with other people, by making promises and pledges to them, right, horizontally, to other men, to other women, right, I'll give you an example of that in in Deuteronomy chapter 10, right, in verses, in verse 20, Moses has just, is saying to the people as they've come out of the land of Egypt and they're moving toward the land of promise, listen to what he says to them, he says, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and there's that word again, hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear, that word hold fast in your translation might be rendered cling to. If you've got the old King James, it might say cleave, right? It's that same idea of holding fast that shows up in Genesis 2.24. So Moses is calling the people of Israel to hold fast to their commitment to the Lord, their promise and pledge to God that they would obey Him and, be, and walk with Him and come under His authority. They would hold fast to that in obedience as God is promised and holding fast to His pledge to bless them. And as a result of that, they would swear by his name, under his authority, they would enter into oaths and promises and pledges with each other. And the Bible says whenever we enter into that kind of covenant relationship, when a man enters in that kind of covenant relationship with a woman, in Genesis 2.24, we're told that the two shall become one flesh. Right? Literally, that means they would be stuck together. Stuck together. Because that old English word cleave, and those more modern English words, hold to or hold fast to or cling to, they literally mean this in the Hebrew. They mean to be glued together. Now listen, I do not consider myself to be a master craftsman by any stretch of the imagination. Okay? I am merely a novice woodworker slash carpenter slash preacher. Okay? Who in some of his downtime likes to build things. Okay? And so I build furniture sometimes for my home or I build furniture for other people. I don't know why they pay me to do it every once in a while, but they do. And so um, I built tables and consoles and swings. And so as I, but as I build things and I begin to join two pieces of wood together, I use both screws and glue. Because screws will join two pieces of wood together, but the glue makes it more of a permanent bond. Because wood glue is formulated in such a fashion that it absorbs into the fibers of the wood so it's not just bonding that wood on the surface, but it actually bonds it deep within even the molecular structure of the wood. So it seeps into the wood, creating a more permanent, stable, and secure, and strong bond. So that even if you remove the screws, and you put enough pressure on that wood for that bond to break, eventually it will. But if you put enough pressure on that bond for it to break, it will not break cleanly. It will not break cleanly down that wood where it's joined those two pieces or that glue where it's joined the two pieces of wood together. But what will happen is both of those pieces of wood, as, it's, as that bond is broken and shattered, it will leave gouges in those pieces of wood because it will rip part of them out with the break. 
And that is the view that the Bible has of marriage, that it is a deep, enduring, lasting, strong bond that's like gluing two souls together at the molecular level. That's how the Bible envisions this relationship between husbands and wives. And the glue that binds them together, listen church, is this. It's the promise and pledge that they make to a covenant partner. Because the Bible sees marriage as a sacred covenant, not a social contract. See, a social contract functions a lot differently than that. A contract looks at another person and says this, basically, like you've signed contracts before, right? Through all the fine print, right? All the little footnotes everywhere in the contract that you read. Eventually, you get down to signing your name and it says this. If you do these things for me, then I will do these things for you. The moment that you cease to do these things for me, then I will cease to uphold my obligation to you as well. That's what a contract says. But a covenant is much different. Because a covenant says, I will pledge and promise to you, my covenant partner, to do these things for you, whether or not you do these things for me. And should you cease to do these things from you, I am still bound by promise and pledge to do these things for you. That's what a covenant does. That's how a covenant works. It's not a contract. Now listen, contracts, contractual relationships are absolutely appropriate when it comes to pest control companies and internet service providers. Right? Absolutely. Right? But listen, here's the principle. The more intimate the relationship, the more damaging it is to operate contractually. The more intimate the relationship, the more damaging it is to operate contractually, right? And so you may operate one way, right, with a home security company or a general contractor, right? Somebody breaks your window, the alarm goes off, the home security company doesn't call the authorities, nobody shows up at your house. In a free market society, what do you do? You break your contract and you go find a better provider. That's what you do. But the more intimate the relationship the more damaging it becomes to operate contractually. Let me give you a few examples. At Redeemer, we don't see church membership as a contract. We see it as a covenant. And so as a covenant member of a church body and a family that you're binding yourself to through promise and pledge, you don't sit back and say things like, well, listen, whenever you can provide all the goods and services and all the bells and whistles and you can get your act together, then I'll get involved. Then I'll start serving. Then I'll start giving. Then I'll start participating. That's not what a covenant member says. A covenant member says, I'm pledging myself to these people and I want to get my elbows in down deep in their lives. I want to get involved. I want to serve. I'm going to participate. I'm going to give. Because I want to see this thing develop and grow and see what God might do. That's what covenant membership says. It doesn't say, when you get your act together, then I'll get involved. It says, let me help you come alongside and let's get our act together together right or think about it this way true friendship true friendship isn't contractual it's more covenantal in nature because true friendship doesn't say this it doesn't look at the other person and say because you were not there for me when i needed you i will not be there for you whenever you need me that's not what true friendship says is it true friendship real friendship deep abiding friendship looks at the other person and says whether or not you could be there for me in my moment of need i will be there for you in yours right parental relationships work the same way they're more covenantal less contractual right 
So whenever your three-year-old is potty training, you don't look at your three-year-old and say, if you will stop pooping in your pants, I will start feeding you again. (laughs) Right? That's not what you say to them. That's contractual and illegal, by the way. It's called child endangerment. But you look at your child and you say, I will continue to care for you. I will continue to nourish you. I will continue to provide for you even when things get really, really messy. That's a covenantal bond where you're pledging and you're promising yourself to another. And there is no more intimate relationship on the face of this earth than the relationship between a husband and a wife who have bound themselves to one another by promise and pledge and are covenant partners in marriage. There's no more intimate relationship. And so whenever, listen, whenever we substitute this love substitute of contractual love for covenantal love, it is disastrous in a marriage. Let me give you four ways that they're different and four ways it's disastrous. First of all, first of all, contractual love in the context of a marriage, listen, it celebrates current feelings of love while covenantal love celebrates the promise of future love. There's a big difference between those two. In my time in ministry, I've had the privilege of probably doing about 30 weddings for couples. It's a great joyous occasion, but at some of those weddings, as we stand there before the altar, they have asked of me to write their own vows. And so, sure, go ahead, write your own vows. But one thing that I've noticed about these couples that write their own vows, or just about the vows that they write, is this is that those vows tend to be a rehearsal of their past or current feelings for each other, right? So they chronicle their journey of all the things that they've been through and how they got them to where they are today and how much and how strongly they love each other on the day in which all their family and friends are gathered around to witness this covenant ceremony. So all the verbiage in those vows is either past tense or present tense verbiage, This is where we've came from and this is where we are. And listen, I know this is going to sound harsh, but it's true. That is nothing more than a regurgitation of past or present emotion. They're just kind of puking up past or present passion. But the traditional marriage vows are nothing like that. And here, listen, the traditional marriage vows have been used by pastors from all stripes and shades and colors and denominations, regardless of the theological differences over the course of time. And here's how they differ from most of the vows that I hear couples write for themselves. It's this, is they do not at all celebrate the feelings of current love, but they make a promise and pledge of future love. For better or for worse, for richer or for poor, for sickness and in sickness and in health. They're pledging their allegiance and affection in the future, not celebrating how they feel in the present. And there's a big difference between those two things. That's how the Bible views this kind of love, of sacrificial commitment, of unconditional commitment in the context of marriage, that it's a promise and a pledge that that's going to be there in the future. Because the Bible doesn't measure love primarily by how I feel about from someone and what I can get from them the kind of feeling that I get from them, the kind of excitement that I get from them, the kind of energy that I get from them, but the Bible primarily measures love by how much I'm willing to give to someone, how much of my freedom I'm willing to forsake for them, 
how much of my life I'm willing to let go of on their account. That's how the Bible measures love. Not by what I receive, but by what I'm willing to give. How much of my precious time, emotion, and resources I'm willing to invest. What I'm willing to promise now and fulfill in the future. That's how the Bible measures love. And listen, church, contractual love has no seeing and staying power at all. Has no seeing and staying power. Right? Because all it does is celebrate how I feel today. It makes no promise for what's coming tomorrow. So it has no seeing and staying power because it's based on my current feelings. And if that's the case, then your relationship is headed for destruction. Because your feelings will change. They will change from week to week. They will change from year to year. There will be ebbs and flows in the context of the relationship. And if all you're doing is celebrating current feelings with no promise of future love, you're putting yourself in a very dangerous position, right? Because eventually, your spouse is going to begin to show blemishes in their body and eventually begin to even see stains on their soul. And they will sin against you and you will sin against them. How are you going to feel about them in those moments? Probably not the same way that you felt whenever you celebrated your past and present passion on your wedding day. So the only thing that will cause you to see the blemishes of their body and the stains of their soul and stay in the context of that relationship is the promise and pledge that you made to love them in the future, sacrificially and unconditionally. There's a difference between those two kinds of loves. Second of all, I could talk about that for a long time. Second of all, Contractual love leads to bondage, but covenantal love leads to freedom. And some of you are like, no, it does not. Right? Because we have this so backwards in the way that we think. See, we believe that contractual love, the celebration of current love, right, that it leads to freedom because we get to move from relationship to relationship based on our current feelings, how we feel in the moment. And listen, I'm not talking about jumping from relationship to relationship every week, though that may be the case for some people. I'm talking about moving from relationship to relationship over the course of time because this one ceases to bring the kind of excitement, the kind of energy, the kind of spark that I thought it would have whenever we stood before all of our family and friends and committed ourselves to our current feelings on the day of our wedding. It doesn't have that kind of spark or it doesn't elicit that kind of emotion any longer from me, right? And so we think that we're free if we're free to walk away from that, no strings attached. But listen, I want you to know something, that what we think is freedom on the front end actually leads to bondage on the back end, and here's why. Because what you, what you don't realize on the front end is that what, if you think that that's freedom, eventually you end up in bondage and in captivity to your whims and wishes any given day to your desires in that moment, to your current feelings, to your insecurities and uncertainties. You end up captive to those. Well, listen, covenantal love and the promise of future love, I want you to consider it's much different. On the other hand, we think the promise of future love will restrict us. We think that we're losing our freedom. And listen, on the way in, you do. You do. But once you're in, and over the course of time, as you make promises and pledges, it opens you up to a more wonderful and fuller freedom in the context of human relationships. And here's why. Because there is nothing, there is no degree or level of freedom that is more freeing in the context of a human relationship than trust. 
It is the commodity of freedom in relationships. It's trust. And over the course of time, as you pledge and promise and fulfill those pledges and promises through the highs and lows, what you're doing is you're cultivating and establishing trust in that relationship. Because you don't bounce from one to the next. Because what those who bounce from one to the next don't realize is that all the excitement and energy that they have coming into that new relationship is eventually going to fade just like the last one did. And they're going to be looking for another one constantly captive to their whims and wishes and their fickle feelings in those days and moments. Wow, covenantal love leads to this beautiful, vast expanse of freedom in a relationship. Because there's trust there. Tim Keller in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, he says it this way. He says, in promising, you limit your options now in order to have more wonderful, fuller options later. You curb your freedom now so that you can be free to be there in the future for people who trust you. You make a promise to someone both When you make a promise to someone, both of you know that you're going to be there with and for them. That you're going to be there with and for them through all the challenges and changes of life. That they're going to be there for you and with you through all the challenges and changes in your life. Because listen, you are not static. You know that? You are dynamic. You will change over the course of time. The person my wife married 17 years ago is not the person that stands before you today in many ways, better because of her. And she's better in spite of me. (laughs) It's funny how that works. Lewis Meads is a Christian ethicist. Listen to how he says it. He says, when I married my wife, I hardly had a smidgen of sense for what I was getting into with her. How could I know how much she would change over 25 years? How could I know how much I would change? He says, my wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and each of the five has been me. Because he's changed over the course of time, but whenever there is promise of future love and a pledge that is fulfilled and a commitment that is upheld, you begin to establish what Smeeds calls a sanctuary of trust in a jungle of unpredictability. Because any relationship that is not based on covenant, promise, pledge is a relationship of unpredictability. You don't know what's coming in the future. You have no certainty that somebody's going to be there with you and for you in the future. And listen, jungles are savage places. Are they not? But sanctuaries are stable ones. See, contractual love leads to bondage, but covenantal love leads to fullness and freedom. Third, and we've got to move, right? Because you've got to go to lunch. Contractual love rises and falls on the idea. Listen, church, this is so important. Think of you're single this morning. It rises and falls on the idea of another person. While covenantal love remains, even after reality, replaces fantasy. Hmm. I know I'm preaching right now. (laughs) Listen, in our Western American culture, we commit to people on the basis of romantic attraction oftentimes before we even know them. As a result, so so many people in our culture, what happens is our hearts, they run so far past our heads and we begin to feel more for a person than we actually know about that person. And so what our minds have a tendency to do is they have a tendency to fill in the gaps 
and they fill in the gaps based on all those good positive feelings that we're having. So we paint this, construct this portrait of the other person where they're just this epitome of perfection. They can do no wrong. In fact, one of the ways, one, one of the red flags in premarital counseling that I see in the lives of couples is whenever they respond to this question and it asks it ask them this question, is, has everything that you've discovered about your fiancé been pleasing to you? And if they say yes, I'm like, whoa! That's a huge red flag. Because their heads are lagging so far behind their hearts that their heads are just kind of filling in all the gaps with good, positive feelings. But listen, whenever that fantasy that we create for ourselves in our minds is replaced with reality, contractual love does not see and stay. It does not see and stay. On the flip side, covenantal love is so different. Listen, in the Lord of the Rings, uh, there is, in, in Tolkien's trilogy, there's a beautiful elven princess named Eowyn, and she falls in love with a human ranger named Aragorn, who is the heir to the throne of Gondor. Some of you are like, you are so nerdy. <laughs> and you would be right. But at one point, he realizes he cannot return her love. And at one point in the story, he says to her brother, he says, she loves you more truly than me. For you she loves and knows, but in me she loves only a shadow and a thought and a hope of glory and of great deeds and lands far away. See, what Aragorn realizes and understands is that contractual love, that romantic attraction that does something for me in the moment because there's mystery and I don't understand and I don't know everything. My mind's filling in all those gaps that it's incredibly intoxicating. And here's why. It's so intoxicating for us because we're actually in love with the idea of another person rather than a real human being. We're actually in love with fantasy rather than reality. Whenever reality replaces fantasy, the only thing that has seeing and staying power is covenantal love because I made a pledge and a promise to this person to love them for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poor, until death disjoins us from each other. That's the kind of covenant love the Bible speaks of. And that's the only kind of love that helps endure the replacement of fantasy with reality. Third, I'm sorry, fourth, fourth. Some of you are like, no, fourth. Contractual love. Listen, it is functional. While covenantal love, it is beautiful. It is beautiful. Contractual love, let's, let's, let's consider this for a moment, is built on the usefulness of the person in our lives and it becomes less and less attractive over time when they become less and less useful and they're no longer able to serve a function for us. When that person no longer does it for us, right, we're done with them. Right, and that's functional love. That's useful love. Right? It does not endure all the challenges and changes of life. On the other hand, covenantal love is not functional, but it's beautiful. And here's why it's so beautiful, church. Because it abides and it remains and it stays steadfast even through the highs and lows of life. Listen, and the, the reason that's beautiful is because you know this to be true. I'm gonna show it to you in a second, but you know it to be true is that you are captivated by that kind of love aren't you you are captivated by it by stories and great stories of literature and great stories on the screen and great songs that have been written 
Let me give you an example. His song, All of Me, that was released in 2013 on an album, his fourth studio album, Love in the Future, was sung by American singer John Legend. And it's dedicated to his wife. And it first aired on American mainstream urban radio as the album's third single on August 12, 2013. Nine months later, on May 16, 2014, it peaked at the number one on the Billboard Hot 100, becoming his first number one single in the U.S., I want you to hear the lyrics of that song. It says, What would I do without your smart mouth? Some of you are like, Can I get a witness? <laughs> Drawing me in and kicking me out. You got my head spinning, no kidding. I can't pin you down. What's going on in that beautiful mind? I'm on your magical mystery ride. And I'm so dizzy. I don't know what hit me, but I'll be all right. How many times do I have to tell you, even when you're crying, you're beautiful too? The world is beating you down. I'm around through every mood. So you're like, amen. You're my downfall. You're my muse. I can't, like, I think about you all the time. You're my muse. Right? You're my distraction. You're my rhythm and blues, he says. I can't stop singing. It's ringing in my head for you. My head's underwater, but I'm breathing fine. You're crazy. I'm out of my mind. Can't, cards on the table. We're both showing hearts, risking it all, though it's hard. And the chorus says, because all of me loves all of you. Loves your curves and all your edges, all your perfect imperfections. I give my all to you. you you're, you're my end and my beginning. Even when I lose, I'm winning. Because I give you all, all of me, and you give me all, all of you. You know why that song rose to number one on the top 100 on the Billboard charts? It's because it resonates with something so deeply ingrained with us and it sings of a love that every one of our hearts is deathly afraid of but deeply desires. A love in which we could be fully known and fully loved. With all our cards on the table, we're both showing our hearts Risking everything, he says, though it's hard. Because all of me loves all of you, all of your curves, right? The soft and attractive things about you and your edges, those sharp things that are a little bit more difficult to, to love, all your perfect imperfections. I give you all, all of me. You give me all, all of you. We desperately want a love in which we can be naked and not ashamed. That we lost in the garden so many years ago when our first parents took of the tree and ate and sin enters the world. We're born into a world in which we, to be naked is to be ashamed. But we want a love in which we can be absolutely transparent, fully vulnerable, completely authentic and lay everything on the table and know that as we are fully known, we will be fully loved. That is a beautiful kind of love, not a functional one. It's not useful for me, but it's captivating because it is so beautiful to me. There's a big difference between contractual and covenantal love, church. And listen, let me, let me say this. The reason this kind of love is so beautiful is because this kind of love is a reflection. It is a reflection of something more deep and more profound than any human relationship possible. Because marriage is a mirror. That's what Paul says in verse 32. 
He says, this, this marriage, right? This covenant union, this two souls being glued together at the molecular level that promises future love, that leads to freedom, that celebrates pledges, that is a beautiful and attractive, that, is, that is, has seeing and staying power even whenever reality replaces fantasy. This marital covenant, he says, refers to Christ and the church, two becoming one. It's a mystery. He says your marriage is intended, the seeing and staying in your marriage is intended to reflect the seeing and staying of God. That God has been a faithful heavenly groom even as we have been an unfaithful earthly bride. And marriage is so beautiful, that kind of love is so beautiful because it sets forth a demonstration, an earthly demonstration of a spiritual reality in which God has loved us so deeply that He has seen the darkest parts of our souls and He has stayed. That Jesus has seen and stayed with us. Right, Jesus has seen all, and he's known all, that all of us would eventually be consumers. But he's seen and stayed. Jesus saw and stayed even though he knew we would be shot through with self-absorption and selfishness and self-centeredness. Jesus saw and stayed even though he knew that he would, we would be in the grip of greed, even though that he knew we would be corrupted by perversion rather than dwelling on things that are pure. That Jesus has seen and stayed with us even though he, we knew we would run around on him and that with other lovers and we would commit spiritual adultery with our idols. Jesus has seen and stayed with us even though he knew that we would trade honesty for hypocrisy and refuse authenticity in our lives. He knew all those things and he saw and stayed with us, church. But not only that, but he also saw and stayed for us. See, he didn't just see and stay with us as an example for us to follow, but he saw and stayed for us because he knew that we couldn't see and stay ourselves. He knew that we could not be faithful. And so he saw and stayed for us even when we could not do it for ourselves as our substitute. And he's saying in your marriage, whether you're married today or you want to move toward it in the future, that your marriage is about this mirror, a reflection to the world of the seeing and staying covenant love of God toward his people. And so some of you are like, that's great, what do I do with it? Let me give you two things as we close. And these are gonna be quick. First of all, for those of you who are married, you need to think covenant. Your mind has been so, listen, mine as well, has been so shaped by contract in our culture that you need to shift the way that you think to think covenant. Think covenant, church. Two ways to do that. First of all, let me ask you this question. What is more attractive to you? A good time or a good legacy? Which of those is more attractive to you? if you're married, a good time or a good legacy. In 2010, there was a New York Times article written by a lady named Wendy Plump and she chronicles how her marriage dissolved after she had had an affair. After the affair, she came, came to light. Her husband had an affair as well and their marriage fell apart because both of them were looking for a good time and not a good legacy. But listen to what she says. She says, as she reflected even on her parents' marriage, 
She says, they have this marriage of 50 years behind them. And it is a monument to success. A few weeks or a few months of illicit passion could not hold a candle to it. And then she asked this question, if you were 75, which would you rather have? Years of steady, if occasionally strained, right, devotion and commitment or something that looks a little bit like the Iraqi city of Fallujah cratered with spent artillery shells. Speaking from her own experience. She says, which would you rather have? Would you rather have a seeing and staying kind of love when you look back on the landscape of your life, even if there's years of strained devotion, you work through it. You realize that statistics show that two-thirds of all marriages that would classify themselves as unhappy today Within five years, if they would see and stay and work through it, that two-thirds of those marriages would classify themselves as happy. Is it worth pulling the eject cord because you're looking for a good time? Or is it worth seeing and staying because you're looking for a good legacy? When you look back, which is more attractive to you? Think covenant. The second thing I'll say to think covenant for those of you who are married is this. So you've got to learn You've got to learn, right, to spend the currency of the covenant. And what does Paul say that is in verse 33? He says it's love and respect. And we'll talk more about this in the future. I don't have, we're running out of time, so I don't have time to go into this. But listen, here's what I would, I would say very briefly as a flyover, kind of shot across the bow. Here's, here's what we're going to dig into further into this series is this. The currency of the covenant is love and respect. And listen, the exchange rate is not always one for one. You know that? It's not always one for one. For every dollar that you put in, you're not always going to get a dollar back. Right? But what that means is this, for, you, for those of you men in the room, when Paul says, however, even though this marriage refers to Jesus and the church, it's a beautiful picture, a mirror of his covenant love. He says this, he says, however, see that each of you loves his wife as himself. How do you love yourself? Sacrificially, unconditionally. You're willing to lay things aside. Right? Love your wives that way. That means you don't blow off her needs whenever she needs something. Right? And listen, just because you, listen, the Bible says to you, men, it says to me, like I'm looking in the mirror, it tells me I gotta die. I gotta die. Right? To love my wife, to love her well, I gotta die. And listen, that means even this, men, even when you don't feel like she's deserving of your death. Because there's not always a one-for-one exchange rate. You cannot blow her off. But also, listen, ladies. The scriptures say respect your husbands. And listen, exchange rate's not always gonna be one-for-one there either. But listen, even when you feel like he's not deserving of your respect, you can't blow him up. Right, you don't blow him up in front of your kids. You don't blow him up in front of your friends. You don't blow him up in front of your mom. And I know I'm preaching there too. right that's part of love and respect right you gotta think covenant and you gotta invite other people to speak into your marriage as well people that you're willing to open those doors up to and let them begin to speak in because you don't always people ladies you need somebody in your life who's at times gonna shut you down when you start blowing him up (laughs) you're like whoa hold on sister rein it in and men you need somebody that's gonna ride your cage a little bit when you start blowing her off and dismissing her needs 
You need to open the doors of your marriage to other people and let them walk alongside of you in that. Here's the last thing I'm going to say. As we close, if you're single this morning, listen, you've got to train yourself for covenant. If you're married, you've got to think covenant. If you're single, you've got to train yourself for it. And a part of training for it is this, is renouncing the pervasive hookup culture in which you live, in which there are casual relationships and casual sexual encounters that take place week after week after week. You've got to renounce that kind of culture because you're training for covenant. You're training for loyalty. You're training for promise. You're training for pledge. You're not training to consume somebody else, but you're training to give yourself to somebody else in fullness. Right? you also got to refuse to adopt the, the test drive of cohabitation. And I know that that might be a tender point for some of us in the room. We've got to refuse to adopt that kind of test drive of the relationship. And we could talk about this for a long time this morning, but I'll give you this, right? That what you, what you think is that in cohabitating and living together before marriage, what you think is, I'm going to see if this works for me. But what you're doing is you're approaching that relationship as a contract, not as a covenant. Because you say, before I'm willing to commit to that person, before I'm willing to pledge or promise to that person, I want to see if they work for me. If they don't require too much change from me, if they don't require too much from, from me emotionally, if they don't require too much change from me financially, if they don't require too much change from me in any other area of my life that I want to hang on to, if they don't want to change that, then, I will, I'll, then I'll commit, but I've got to see that first. But what you don't realize is this, is that in the process of cohabitating is this, is that you are on a 24-7 job audition. You're auditioning for a role. In fact, there have been men and women in my life who have said, we lived together for so long before we got married, I had no idea. And here's why. Because they were hiding that. Because they were still auditioning. It was still an audition. So you've got to renounce the hookup culture and casual sexual relationships. You've got to refuse that test drive. And listen, the last thing that I'll say is this. Somebody's like, thank you, please stop. Last thing I'll say is this. If you're single, you've got to commit to a people before you commit to a person. And here's what I mean by that. Some of you, it would serve you so well if you are out there dating, trying to consider who it is that you might move toward marriage with, that you commit to a local church in, in, before you commit to a person in marriage. Some of you are like, well, I'm waiting until I get married and then I'll commit to a church. Then we'll get involved in a church. No, commit to a people before you commit to a person. And that might save you some heartache of the person that you were going to commit yourself to because you commit to those people and become a part of a family that's willing to walk with you and care for you and nurture you and speak truth to you. Here's what happens. They might save you from some real foolish decisions in moving toward marriage with someone who is not ready to move toward covenant but just wants to use you for a contract because they will see things that you don't. They will help fill in the gaps in your mind whenever your mind's wanting to paint this rosy picture of the person in perfection. They can see some of the patterns in their lives maybe before you even can as you begin to bring them a part of the church body to be a part of that fellowship. So commit to a people before you commit to a person. And find a family. I'm done. <laughs> right? In the weeks to come, we're going to continue to unfold this idea of marriage and the mirror that it is. But listen, listen, it is not a social contract. 
It is a sacred covenant and God's desire is that we treat it as such that we could be a clearer reflection of his loving kindness towards us. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, I know that there might be some in the room for whom this is a painful message. And Father, I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would touch those tender areas of their heart and that you would heal. That maybe there is the breaking up of some scar tissue right now in their hearts and in their souls, God, that you would begin to realign those things. And Father, whether they're here this morning because they have aspired to marriage and it's not yet come to fruition in their life, or they're here this morning because their marriage has ended and dissolved in divorce, maybe even one they didn't want, and it created pain and they've been hemorrhaging and their scar tissue build up. God, may, may your spirit press in those areas and release them and give them freedom. And Father, for those in the room whose marriages are struggling, God, I pray this might be the impetus in their life to move out of this chronic season of crisis in their marriage perhaps toward fullness and flourishing. God, help us to shift our view away from thinking like marriage is a social contract and see, help us to see it, God, by your grace as a sacred covenant and to think covenant, to think legacy, to value legacy more than a good time and spend that currency in our marriages of love and respect even when the exchange rate doesn't seem to be in our favor and help us to train for it if we're single as we move towards it, all because you have seen and stayed with us so wonderfully and so beautifully in your son. And that we might be a picture of that to this world that so desperately is looking for a love in which they could be fully known and fully loved. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.